You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you are, uh, we would love for you to have a copy. Uh, we're picking up after Joseph received his colored uh, robe and dreamed that his family would be someday bowing down to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No. I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this beautiful morning, and we thank you for the chance together with fellow believers uh, and to hear your word. Um, We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and ask that uh, we turn our eyes to him. Um, please teach us your ways and help us to grow to be more like him. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Good morning. Thank you, Nathan. I love biblical counseling. I count it a huge privilege as a pastor to be there not just when life is easy, but when it is hard. I find that almost every real life change, every major ministry impact happens often through difficult circumstances. But biblical counseling is not easy. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, It is hard. And because biblical counselors enter into hard circumstances regularly, when we train, when we get together, we often try to sharpen our counseling tools with something called case studies to help us understand how to better help people. Romans chapter 15 has a very interesting short command or short statement by Paul in which he was confident of the Roman church, a place where he had never visited, but it was writing to. He says he was confident that they could admonish one another. That word admonish means to encourage or help. We could say counsel one another so that somehow in the body of Christ there is this expectation that we should be able to help one another. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning as we start the sermon. Let's just pretend that I have deputized you all as biblical counselors this morning, and I want to give you a case study. I want to share this case study with you with the understanding that this case study means that as you're thinking about it, the question to ask yourself is, what could I say to this person to help them? Is there any place in the Bible I could go to to help them with this story, with their story? Uh, The case study I want to share is is a true story. I have changed some details to protect identities, but this has really happened. So listen carefully because in the end I want you to to see what perspective you might be able to, to give this person. So the story is about a young man. We will call him J.D., Uh, J.D. grew up in a large family. They weren't poor. Uh, They were, in fact, fairly successful. But he was no trust fund baby. His family worked very hard for a living. Uh, J.D. grew up as a fourth-generation rancher out west. His great-granddad, Abe, immigrated to America, headed west to God's country, and started the family ranch. His granddad, Ike, grew the business further, expanding far beyond the original 80-acre ranch. And his dad, Jake, who was a phenomenal wheeler and dealer, expanded it even further, parlaying the family's ranch success into a nationwide retail business, Jake's Big Ranch Supply. They got 12 regional offices and and they're a large family-owned company. Their slogan... From tractor parts to chicken feed, Jake's Big Ranch has what you need. Garth Brooks is their paid spokesperson. As his family business grew, the dad, Jake, regionalized the retail operations, dividing responsibilities among the family members. And J.D. was the youngest son. And he showed incredible natural managerial talent. He also had strong convictions about how business ought to be done. His brothers did not necessarily practice the same business ethics. In fact, they tended to give lip service to these principles when Dad and J.D. were were around and then divert to doing things their own way when the bosses weren't looking. 
Well, Jake quickly moved J.D. into an executive VP position. He had all the other sons reporting to J.D. Dad even had a custom leather briefcase made for J.D. with the family ranch cattle brand worked into the leather. Dad treated J.D. with sort of a rock star vibe, always talking him up to anybody about how he was the future of the family business. Jake implicitly trusted J.D., but as you can imagine, this was going to cause some issues with family members who already felt like they were busy doing enough, and J.D. was this visionary idealist and a stickler for doing business by the book. J.D. would report to his dad any time he saw his brothers being loose with the business. Some of the brothers kept getting demotions for their dishonesty. And meanwhile, J.D. kept trying to encourage business growth by sharing his bigger dreams for where it could all be one day. And the business thrived, even as the family dynamics started to get competitive and nasty. Dad Jake hadn't heard a lot from the Northwest Division, so he sent J.D. on a fact-finding business trip. Uh, This particular division had brothers running it that were, let's just say, ethically suspect. Unknown to both dad and the executive vice president's son, they had some dealings with some black market traders. They were secretly pocketing some serious cash using the company as a front. So when they heard that J.D. was coming to pay them a visit, they quickly plotted to take care of the problem. Leaning into some of their criminal connections, they arranged human traffickers to haul away their younger brother, and they made it look like the company chopper had crashed in the fog outside, outside Mount Rainier. All the brothers claimed to see the chopper go down. See, I told you they were sketchy. When their dad arrived at the crash scene, he was inconsolable. There in the smoking wreckage was the scorched leather briefcase that he had given J.D. All Jake's hope for the family's future was destroyed with the loss of J.D. Now, meanwhile... J.D. wound up being passed from owner to owner in the illicit world of human traffickers. And there were some bad things that happened to him. You can imagine. He he was put to work in a series of underground factories making designer knockoffs. Every place he he was sent was a sweatshop and very inhumane. But somehow J.D. managed to thrive beyond these things and even avoided the worst possible experiences. But every place he was imprisoned... J.D. brought the best efforts that he could, and yet people kept misunderstanding and mistreating him. Circumstances eventually led to him being freed from the confines of this murky criminal underground. And now you, deputized biblical counselor, have heard his story. He desperately needs perspective on why these things happened to him. What are you going to tell him? Is there perhaps some place in the Bible that has a very similar story? Well, if you listen to our text as we read it this morning, you've heard a familiar melody in the storyline about J.D., I mean Joseph. And his story actually fits with human experience today. You see, as we look at his story, there are two questions I want us to ask from the text. One, will I obey when life is harder than I expected? Secondly, will I endure when life is not what I expected? And then after we ask those questions, we want to see how the answers to them are perfectly found in Jesus. Because we need a gospel perspective. 
every one of us in this room has been hurt at least once by people we care about. Every one of us has in some way probably hurt someone we care about. And we need the gospel perspective from this text. Let's look at our first question right now. Will I obey when life is harder than I expected? This, is, this question comes from verses 12 through 17. We'll notice several things in, in the Joseph story. First, notice this. Joseph is sent from, he's sent from his father in verses 12 and 13. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So Joseph is going to leave the relative safety of his very privileged position with dad to do what his dad asks of him. You remember last week, we learned that Joseph was the favored son. In verse 3, it said that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he gave him the robe of many colors. Jacob's messed up family dynamics actually benefited Joseph, though. He was the son whom his father had specifically already chosen as the clear heir to the family's future. Now, Joseph is being asked to leave this privileged place right next to dad to check on his father's flocks. He's already placed young Joseph in the executive vice president of operations role of the family business, clearly on track to be the CEO in the future. But he's not only sent from the father, he's sent to his brothers. Look at verse 14. He said, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Now, this should have been a good thing. Go check up on your brothers. Spend some time with them. Report back to me. But if you recall, Joseph's brothers were not happy about dad's preference for him. In fact, in verse 4 of the text that we looked at last week, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. There was a constant friction with his brothers about his dad's preference of them. In fact, if you remember from last week, Joseph had done the right thing in reporting the wrongful actions of his brothers Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In verse 2, they're pasturing, uh, he's pasturing flocks with them, and he gives a bad report. Evidently, they were doing something wrong. So Jacob is probably sending Joseph because of his concerns, not that the boys are doing a great job, but probably concerned that they aren't doing the best job. And so this puts the executive vice president, Joseph, in this very uncomfortable role of being parole officer for dad and a snitch, as seen by his brothers. The result of this uh, difficult squeeze is that all the brothers hate him. A third of them already have a personal vendetta against him. Jacob had to know this, yet he sent his favored son into a hostile environment anyway. He sent from his father, he sent to his brothers, and then notice in the middle of verse 14, Joseph obeys at great risk. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. 
Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, if you remember earlier when dad said, Joseph, I need you to go, what was his response? Here I am. I'm ready. He was already willing to obey, even without knowing the task. But now, in this section, we're getting a a sense of the difficulty of the task. It's a risky thing that Joseph is doing. Let Let me unpack that for you. First, it's risky because of the distance. Uh, he's leaving the valley of Hebron. He's going to Shechem. This is a distance of about 50 miles. So let's put that in perspective. If, if you live in DeSoto like I do, imagine sending a 17-year-old on an errand to Topeka. Oh, and he isn't driving. He's walking there. He, he's going to be gone a few days. But you're confident because of your past, because your family's made this kind of hike before but it's still risky because of the distance. It's also risky because of where the location, where Joseph is headed. Shechem was where his brothers had revenge killed an entire town. The whole messy Genesis 34 story of rape, revenge, and merciless vigilante slaughter that was committed by Jacob's boys. Here's Joseph in enemy territory with his brothers now long gone, but by God's providence, a man happens to know where his brothers went. They probably had a reputation in the area. And he sends Joseph looking in the right direction. Joseph's obedience, though, keeps getting tested. He stays at the task assigned to him. And like a special op that doesn't quite go the way it's supposed to, he has to respond when things aren't what he thought they were going to be. It's risky because of the distance, it's risky because of the location, and then it's risky because the assignment changed. He had to go to Dothan, which was another 15 miles north of Shechem. We aren't given any info about the text, in the text about whether Jacob's family was familiar with this area. It's probably new territory for Joseph. He's never been there. They'd all lived near Shechem before, but this is a new place. So now your 17-year-old that you sent to Topeka is crossing the Kansas River and heading north to the little town of Rossville. It's at least another day's hike, and none of it is familiar to him. So as we think about Joseph's commitment to obey beyond all of these unexpected twists and hardships, it leads us to our very first application this morning, and that's this. Following Jesus will involve some hardship. Following Jesus will involve some hardship. You see, for Joseph, obeying his dad meant obeying even when it changed and even when it was hard. For Christians, obeying Jesus is synonymous with following Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, what were the two words that drew them in? Follow me. But it is a risky thing to be a disciple. This riskiness is realistic, we should expect it, and it's biblical. Jesus talks about it. Yes, Jesus himself offers to ease our burdens, but he lets us know we will follow with difficulty. We pick up a yoke, but it's an easy yoke. We take up a cross, but it brings us life. We walk a narrow, hard way, but it leads to life. 
We will suffer, but we will be rewarded. Let me just unpack those last four sentences. First, we pick up a yoke, but it's an easy yoke. Jesus gave this invitation in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was something that you put on the animal to pull the plow, to do the work. Jesus said, you're going to do some work, you'll take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We pick up a yoke, but it's an easy yoke. We take up a cross, but it brings us life. Jesus again told his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then we walk a narrow, hard way, but it leads to life. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We are also told that we will suffer, but we will be rewarded. Peter one of the first people to answer the call to follow me by Jesus. Put it this way in 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, as, holy, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Christians like me this morning, we should repent of any comfort-driven thinking that insists that God has to make our life easy or he isn't in control. Serving Jesus means a level of sacrifice, but it's so worth it. In fact, the sacrifices hardly compare to what we get in Jesus. There's this reminder in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now we've seen the challenge from Joseph's example to obey, that life can be harder than we expected, but let's move to the second question to ask ourselves from the text this morning, and that's this, will I endure when life is not what I expected. Will I endure when life is not what I expected? Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Look what happens to Joseph here. First, Joseph is scorned and stripped by his brothers and 
verse 18 through 24. The, the brothers see Joseph from a distance and they immediately conspire. The mocking starts first. Here comes this dreamer. They hate Joseph. They also hate the revelation he received from God. You see, in essence, their rejection of Joseph shows callous hearts to the message of God. If you remember last week in the sermon, the significance of his dreams was that he was revealing something that God had given him. So their, their first plot immediately is murder. Like gangsters, they want to off this guy and then hide his body. Reuben, however, intervenes, perhaps in an attempt to get back into his father's good graces. So if you remember back in Genesis 35, Reuben made this really disgusting power play to assert his perceived right as firstborn son to be the favored son, and it went poorly. Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph, perhaps so that he could find a way to be the hero that brought dad's favorite back to him. And he sees in Joseph a, a chance to wheedle back into dad's good side. But there's something very interesting that happens here. By God's sovereign work, the hate-filled brothers agree to Reuben's plan. They strip Joseph of the hated robe of favor and they dump him into an empty pit. Now, not only do they scorn and strip him, but then starting in verse 25, Joseph is sold by his brothers. They sat down to eat. And, they, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. What a scene. These cold-blooded brothers sit down to eat while Joseph is baking in the wilderness pit beyond them. At some point, off in the distance, there's a caravan of Ishmaelite Midianite traders stirring up dust headed towards them. Their camels are filled with cargo to trade in Egypt. Judah gets this idea. Hey, guys, let's profit from this deal. Let's make some money off this little dreamer and sell him off to Egypt. And in his mind, he justifies it as noble compared to murder. You see, if something did happen to Joseph now, it, it wouldn't be on them. It'd be either on the traders or whoever buys Joseph as a slave. Now, we should notice that now two brothers are trying to change the plans to get rid of Joseph. Reuben has his plans for personal gain and family status. Judas just seems to be pure selfishness. Let's make a buck off of this, guys. And the brothers all go for the idea. It seems better, even though it is purely evil. After all, if, if they weren't going to do what they were really capable of, which was murder... This seems much more righteous. Patting themselves on the back for coming up with a solution that doesn't result in more bloodshed, they gladly themselves of Joseph. But what they're doing is they're trading one sin for another, and what they're doing is still hateful, evil, and disrespectful to their father. 
Now, just an aside this morning, and that is this, sin is so deceptive that we often rationalize just like these brothers. Uh, We minimize sin. We minimize a wrong. You're thinking, yeah, Pastor Marty, but I'm not thinking about murder or human trafficking here. At least I hope not. Still, we talk ourselves into lesser sins that inevitably do incalculable damage to us and to our relationships. Here's an example. I'm very angry with someone I love. I want to scream at them. But instead, I'm going to choose to ignore them, punish them silently, or talk about them to other people. You can pat yourselves on the back for trading down to a lesser evil, but in the end, aren't you still wrong? I know maybe you're saying, ouch, I do, right now, because I think I do these kind of things in nearly every conflict I experience, at least at first. My sinful nature is massively creative in rationalizing and trading down for what I perceive as a lesser evil, even convincing myself It's a kind of righteousness. You see, that's what selfishness does. That's what trying to be secret does. That's what being driven by anger or denial of our own sinfulness can do. It will drive us to lesser evils all the time. You see, if you don't deal with your sins with the gospel you will be tempted to go to a lesser evil. That's what the brothers decided to do. They're content to trade down on their sin. But we realize there's a biblical principle in that sin affects not just people and outward circumstances. Sin is an issue of our heart. Maybe you're here and you've decided the trade down for you is a little bit of porn is better than a whole lot of adultery. But Jesus said looking and lusting has already created adultery in the heart. And so we need to be very careful that the trade downs, we need to realize they still do incalculable damage to our heart. A lesser evil is evil. And I think we know the answer when we really think about it. Back to our text. Joseph is scorned, stripped, he's sold by his brothers, but starting in verse 29, Joseph survives. He survives his brothers. This is where hope enters our story. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone and and I, where, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Interesting, that's what the brothers wanted to see happen to begin with. That's what their father concluded. Then Jacob tore his garments, he put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days, and all his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him, and meanwhile the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, 
the captain of the guard. So how did Joseph survive? Very interesting, the sovereign pull of God on all the different strings of the story. God used part of Reuben's plan, but he kept Reuben from getting what he selfishly wanted. Reuben didn't get to be the hero. God got to be the hero, saving Joseph's life. Reuben's hope of using this situation with Joseph to improve his relationship with dad just completely blows up. That's his reaction in the text. He notices this. He knows it. He knew now, as the oldest, he would be held responsible for what has happened to Joseph. So a very bold deception finalizes the plans. This is the staged helicopter crash of our opening story. Only they dip Joseph's robe in the blood of a slaughtered goat and knowingly bring a deceptive grief to their father. Jacob, of course, believes it completely. He goes into an inconsolable mourning for his favorite son, and ironically, all of Jacob's sons conspired to deceive him about their brother in a turn of the tables. You see, if you remember, Jacob, the wheeler, the dealer, the deceiver, had deceived his own father with the slaughter of a goat to gain the status and blessing that belonged to his older brother. And now all his sons deceive him in a very similar way with a chilling callback to his own callousness. Pastor Dave preached Genesis 35 to us a couple weeks back, and if you remember, one of the insights from Jacob's life is that he left a sad legacy with his sons of a less than stellar commitment to God. And this moment is a generational callback. Jacob reaps what he sows as his own sons deceive him just like he deceived his father and brother. Folks, it's a stinking septic tank of a mess for sure. But God worked with hope even in these actions of others. God used Judah's greed to sell Joseph away, but God also made sure that the Egyptian that eventually bought Joseph was strategically placed for a bigger future than anybody could realize. Yes, there's still hope. Joseph is not dead. He's sold in slavery to Egypt, and in the sovereign work of God, uh, he's, he's kept safe. Though he's still a powerful slave, he's in a place of providence, close to the very court of the king of Egypt. And just like God made sure Reuben did not gain favor in his plan, so God also makes sure Joseph gains favor even in slavery. He's not just any slave. He is close to the powerful center of Egypt God has a plan that works even in these impossibly hateful rejections that Joseph experienced by his own family. Which leads us to another application this morning. And I put it this way. Expect God to be in control of the unexpected. Expect God to be in control of the unexpected. You see, believers, there's a mountain peak we can go to in Romans 8 In fact, we already had one verse from there in our reading this morning during worship. We see in Romans 8 an emphasis on God moving in all things that comprise human experience. In fact, a key, key set of words in Romans 8 is the the two words, all things. Here's just a momentous truth. All things means all things. 
Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32. Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 35 through 37 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Christians, that encouragement should lead us to reflect not just on Joseph but more importantly, on Jesus. You see, one of the amazing things about that life of Joseph, which covers a quarter of the book of Genesis, is that the Joseph story readily points to the Jesus story. I would be doing you a disservice if I preached this passage and you walked out of here and you believed what the pastor said is go be like Joseph. No, go be like Jesus which leads us to our final point this morning. And that's this, Jesus obeyed and suffered for me. You see, Jesus was the sent son in a better way than Joseph was the sent son. Hundreds of years, many generations after Joseph, the father sent his beloved son to his own people and they did not receive him. John 1.11, he came to his own, his own people received him not. Jesus was scorned as God's sent son. His earthly family, his own earthly family called Jesus crazy. Mark 3.21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. There was a bit of what will this dreamer say in Jesus' own family. Jesus was mocked at his trial and crucifixion. They mocked him as the Messiah and chosen ruler of Israel. They mocked his power to save himself on the cross. They even stripped Jesus to whip him at his trial. And yet Jesus and obeyed and suffered for each of us. As Isaiah prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And that leads us to our sermon in a sentence today. In the obedience and endurance of Jesus, I can obey and endure. In the obedience and endurance of Jesus, I can obey and endure. Christian, will you let the obedience and suffering of Jesus put your own hard circumstances in proper perspective? Maybe like Joseph, you seem to experience hardship upon hardship. You're really trying to do the right things with your faith, with your family, in your day-to-day -day career, and it just does not seem to be going great. Let the truth of the gospel of the word of God give you hope. Yes, you may have sorrows, but Jesus carried them. Yes, you may have griefs, but Jesus bore them to the cross. 
Yes, you may have wounds, but by Jesus' own wounds, you are healed. Will you trust this? You must, because life is often harder than we expect. You must, because life does not always go as we expect. Robert Kellerman, in his book, Gospel-Centered Counseling, states this truth so elegantly. The gospel deals thoroughly both with the sins we have committed and the evils we have suffered. Will you lean into Jesus with that hope? Now, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're carrying all the weight of the sorrows you've suffered and the sins you've done, could it be because you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord in this way? Friend, today's the best time right now to believe in him, to turn from your sins, to tell him you're sorry for all of them, to turn from them, trust in his saving and healing grace. He suffered so you do not have to suffer alone. Jesus suffered the penalty for your sin so that you do not have to suffer for your sin. And that is not too good to be true. It is so good and so true. You see, if you have questions about how, that, all, how all that works, believe me, I would love to talk with you about that. Any of our elders, any believers in Jesus here today would love to talk to you about this. Please don't delay the call of God you may feel to get your questions answered about that important truth because Jesus forgives and heals. He obeyed God completely when we could not. He suffered for us so that we do not have to suffer the penalty for our sins. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who obeyed the Father despite all the hardships, who endured rejection, and by his suffering, you and I are saved. Every Christian accepts this, this, believes this, leans into this, trusts this truth. As we conclude this morning, let's circle back to our opening story. Remember J.D., the young rock star executive vice president, ended up abused by criminal human traffickers? He wanted insight into why these sorts of things happen. Now, looking to Jesus, not just Joseph, looking to Jesus, could our understanding of the life of Joseph provide perspective? Could you tell someone who needs perspective on their pain that God's word indeed has hope and insight? I think this story, in fact, all the story of redemption brings us to a simple four-letter word, hope. It will amaze you just how much of your life has unexpected twists and turns. It is, after all, an adventure. And God asks you to take up a cross and follow Jesus. You see, all of us need to know that God is there when doing the right thing is harder than we expect. And all of us need to believe that the strength of Jesus is there when life goes where we never expected. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and despised the shame and are now seated at the right hand of God. Because you suffered for us, we need to suffer for our sin. Because you carried our sorrows and our pains and our wounds, we do not need to carry them. Jesus, my prayer is we would lean into that truth, trust and believe the gospel, and find the joy and the hope that only you bring. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.